Would you turn with me in the scriptures to the gospel according to Luke, chapter 16? Luke 16, beginning at verse 19 through to the end of the chapter. And you might want to keep your Bibles open as I'm going to be referring to this passage as we go along. Jesus is speaking here. Luke 16, verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. The word of the Lord. Brothers and sisters in Christ, way, way back when I was in seminary and learned how to preach, one of the things that they told us was to not go into a passage and say, this is not what it's about. But that's exactly what I'm going to do because it's helpful for this passage. So I just broke all the preaching rules, but I've been here long enough. I think I can do that. So think of a fairy tale. You know, those kinds of stories that end with someone living happily ever after. Often in fairy tales, one finds a good character and a somewhat bad or a wicked character. And the bad or the wicked character is usually the one with the greater power, whereas the good character is usually portrayed in some ways as the underdog. And so the good character often has to overcome great odds in order to be able to live happily ever after. For example, 
Maybe they're old examples, I don't know. In Disney's Lion King, it was Simba who was the good character but the underdog. In order for him to take his rightful spot as the Lion King, he had to overcome the evil lion scar. Or in the old story of Hansel and Gretel, the children representation, represented good or purity, but they're the underdogs, the witch was a representation of power and evil. Now, in both stories mentioned, the underdog is the winner or the one who pulls off a great upset because in each story, the evil character ends up being overcome in some way, shape, or form. And their evil trick somehow backfired, causing them to be destroyed. And so in The Lion King, Scar, who figures he has the upper hand over Sin Simba, ends up falling off a cliff into a raging river and is washed away, never to be seen again. In the story of Hansel and Gretel, the children pulled an upset and tricked, and tricked the, so that the, switch, the witch ended up in the fire and in the oven which she had prepared for the two children. So think of, you probably think of other fairy tales. Think of how many stories there are in life that deal with the underdog coming out as the winner. And it's often repeated in the world of sports as well, even now as Nashville takes on Pittsburgh. And oh, how we love to see the underdog win, don't we? In many a story, the reader is usually filled with a certain amount of satisfaction when the score has been evil, has been evened. The witch in Hansel and Gretel, really kind of had it coming. She deserved what she got. After all, look what she did to the children and look what she was going to do to them. Scar was such a disgrace to the lion race and he was such a dark and negative evil force on the world that really he kind of deserved what he got. Maybe something worse should have been done to him. And the viewer or the reader may even express that fact that it was good to see the wicked one destroyed and the world restored to beauty and joy and light. That's the way fairy tales and many stories are written. Evil wreaks havoc in the village, kingdom, or in the lives of a couple of children, but good somehow comes, overcomes evil and the good guy lives happily ever after. End of story until there's a sequel. Now, as we consider the story of the rich man and Lazarus, this parable of Jesus, we ought to, not to think of it as a fairy tale, as some would have us think of it. Mind you, in the story, all the elements of fairy tales are found. The parable has a good character namely Lazarus. And he could be considered to be the underdog in the story. The parable has a villain, if we can call him that, namely the rich man. And much like with the fairy tales, it may even please us to some degree that the rich man, who had it so good in this life, gets thoroughly squeezed in hell. He had it coming anyway. He deserved what he got. After all, he didn't do anything to help Lazarus. 
And it may be delight us to hear that Lazarus, who suffered so much throughout his whole life, was finally compensated some way for all the pains he suffered on earth. While the rich man suffered, Lazarus lived happily ever after, to use the language that's so, oft, that's so often used to conclude fairy tales. And so, in some ways, it may appear that the parable Jesus told is a fairy tale concerning the great squaring of accounts in the next world. And in some ways, it may strike us that Jesus is telling an underdog story, a sort of story in which the first shall be last and the last shall be first. But if that's how you're reading this parable of Jesus, you've missed the point that Jesus is making. If you are reading this parable as one in which one as one which teaches that no matter what our lot is here in life, it's going to be straightened out in the end, and then you will have missed the point Jesus is making. This is not a fairy tale. It's not a story about rich versus poor in which the poor always win out. It's not a rags to riches sort of story. It's not a story about an oppressor as opposed to the one who always gets the short end of the stick, but in the end, the underdog wins. This is not a story in which we ought to pick sides and be happy when Lazarus finally overcomes. This is not even a story <clears throat> that we ought to use to try to figure out what heaven or hell is like. Lots of people have used this story to that end. They've used it to say that because the rich man was able to see Lazarus in heaven and because he was able to be envious and so on, therefore we will be able to see those who are in hell, or we'll be able to see who's in heaven and who's in hell, and we may be able to communicate over the chasm between the two, but the story doesn't say that, and it does not to be used for such purposes. Like one should never use fairy tales to study geography or to prove that wolves and lions and so on can speak, so one ought never to use this parable to make any sorts of conclusions about heaven or hell. And if you're thinking those sorts of things, forget them. Push them aside. That's not Jesus' point. This is not a fairy tale. All right, what's the story about then? What's the point? Well, I've already clued you into that as we began the service. This is a parable that Jesus used to speak about responding to the Word. The key to the parable and its meaning is found in verses 29 and 31, where we hear Abraham speaking and saying that a person must hear Moses and the prophets if she's to come to terms with eternity and her place in it. While we understand that it's by grace that we are saved, that is to say, while we understand that it is God who does the saving of a person, it's God who does the granting of eternal life. At the same time, the Bible is clear that we're called upon to respond to that word. After all, it is by grace through faith that we are saved. And so we must respond to the word of God. In baptism, we hear God's promises to us. And then the task of the parents and the community is to teach us all about those promises. 
so that the day comes when we stand like the four young people this morning and say, yes, me too, I get it. I want to live for Jesus Christ. We must accept the word, believe it, and then live out of that by faith. And that's what this parable gets at. And so if you have your Bible open in front of me, consider with me the two characters. There was a rich man. In itself, there's no problem with this man being rich. Abraham, Job, and others like Joseph of Arimathea were all rich. And the Bible does not hold that against them in any way. The rich man of the parable had a problem with his riches, however. They ran his life. He was in the habit of dressing richly in purple and very expensive royal colored robes. He dressed in all the latest fashions. Besides this, he feasted, says the Revised Standard Version, sumptuously. I love that word, sumptuously. Or he lived in luxury, says the New International Version, every day. He ate the best foods, drank good wines, only the best for this man. And the parable stresses the fact that this man wanted to be noticed and he wanted other people to know that he was rich. So like a strutting peacock who wants everyone to see how beautiful and attractive he is, so this rich man flaunted his wealth. He was in love with his riches, with himself, living an utterly selfish lifestyle. That's the message. That's how it is written. He was no gross criminal who disobeyed all sorts of laws. He was not an outright murderer or anything of the sort. Instead, he was merely an empty old fool kept afloat by his money, secure in his money. So much so that he was apathetic to the problems of the rest of the world and closed his eyes to them, even to the poor man who lay right on his doorstep. It seemed like he was afraid of the smell of poverty, perhaps afraid because it was a constant challenge to his lifestyle. Who knows? The poverty always took the gloss off his standard of living. Poverty cramped his style, so he did all that he could to ignore it and avoid it. Thinking about his wealth and lifestyle and then running into the beggar at his doorstep must have given this rich man at times, I'm sure, feelings of superiority. Those with less, like the beggar, were a lower class of human being and not people with whom someone of my class should associate. And so he didn't. And he passed them by. But note that in spite of his standing in the community and in spite of his wealth, there is no name given to this rich man in the story. He's nameless. That's an interesting point. The second character in the story is the poor man, verse 20, who's named, of all things, Lazarus, which means God is my helper. And the Bible speaks of him as not even existing at least as far as the world was concerned, as far as the rich man was concerned. 
So he has a name, but as far in the language and the way Jesus told the story, as far as the rest of the people were concerned, he didn't even exist. Notice the difference between the two characters already. So others walked all over him, ignoring him, not caring for him. He was a reject. He was human garbage. And the only ones who took notice of him were the dogs who licked his sores. But God noticed him too. And so in spite of his namelessness and poor position on earth, God named him. And the name seems to reflect what lived in the heart of the poor beggar. Note that as we are introduced to the poor man, we discover that he didn't even get the crumbs from the rich man's table. But he desired them. He longed for them, for even a little mercy. But he didn't get anything. Lazarus was in a bad way, totally ignored by the rich man who must have walked past him often, with his, probably with his nose in the air, wishing that the poor man was not there. Well, one day the rich man got his wish. As it happens to all human beings in the course of time, the poor man died, in verse 22. We're not even told that he was buried. There probably was no funeral because he was so insignificant to people. And yet we are told that the angels of God carried him to the bosom of Abraham. He had lived and hung on to God's promises, and now he was taken to live for eternity in the presence of the Lord. Before long, the rich man also died, verse 22. And about him, it says he was buried. Unlike Lazarus, he continues to be concerned about himself. And so you get the story of him speaking to Abraham. Father Abraham is his polite address to the father of the Jewish nation. Have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in the fire. Also, there's a recognition of Lazarus on his part. The rich man expects mercy and pity, which he himself, though he had lots of opportunities, had never shown. And as a Jew, he appeals to Abraham. And surely a Jew such as himself ought to have access to pity and mercy and even eternal life. But Abraham denies his request. Not only was the request improper in the light of heavenly justice, but it was also impossible for Lazarus to cross the chasm between heaven and hell. The two cannot have anything to do with one another since they are opposites. Besides, just because the rich man was a Jew, that didn't guarantee salvation. That didn't guarantee eternal life. It wasn't something that heaven owed him. It seems that maybe something finally got through to the rich man, for then perhaps for the first time in his life, the rich man seems to express some concern for others, and now it's for his five brothers. He sees them living their lives as if eternity didn't matter. 
They were living as the rich man had lived, not in the least concerned about their fellow man, also living with the poor on their doorstep, also living in apathy about refugees and poverty and racism and pollution and keeping their mouths shut about injustice and pornography and other misuses of sexuality and so on. They were simply living for themselves, as the rich man had done. Perhaps on the whole, morally okay lives, maybe wisely with their money and so forth, but all the while thinking that because they were biological sons of Abraham since they were Jews, thinking that because they had been baptized or because their names were on the rolls of a church, that they were therefore automatically saved and would spend eternity in heaven. That's how the five brothers live. That's how a lot of people live today. And the rich man discovered to his chagrin that there is such a thing as eternal, as an eternal future, either with or without God. And that's a sobering thing. And so the rich man said to Abraham, I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Verse 27. You see what the rich man is saying? If I myself had been warned, I would not be here today. If only I had known what was involved in gaining eternal life, I would have been better off. But how was I supposed to know? In a sense, it almost seems like the rich man is complaining to Abraham that somehow Abraham hadn't done his duty in saving the rich man. He seems to be complaining about the fact that he was not taught properly or the message wasn't clear enough or something, even though he probably knew the Old Testament forward and backward. Thinking of himself as he always did, the rich man asked that Lazarus be sent to his brothers. But isn't it interesting, he doesn't say anything about the rest of Israel, and he doesn't say anything about the rest of the world. It's his brothers that he's concerned about. And then comes the crux of the parable, or the punchline, if you will. Verse 29, Abram said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. In other words, the scriptures are there. And they're available for all to hear and read. And they're well known in Jewish society because they were taught in the synagogues on a regular basis. There, were really, there really was no excuse. The scriptures are full of passages and teaching on loving God above all and one's neighbor as oneself. The Torah or the books of Moses are filled with messages about putting others first, about giving one's all, about total dedication, heart, soul, mind, and strength in the service of the Lord. And that Torah that book of Moses and the prophets, for that matter, constantly call people to repent and constantly taught about all the promises that were there concerning the coming Messiah. At the same time, the books of Moses 
And the prophets again and again spoke about what would happen to those who were disobedient to the will of the Father. We don't like to hear it. The Jews didn't like to hear it. But punishment would come. Israel would lose the land and so on if they would not be obedient to the Lord. Now the problem was that in spite of the fact that the rich man and his brothers heard the books of Moses and heard the prophecies of old, the problem consisted in what they did with it. They went to the synagogue and they simply heard it. And maybe there were times that they found it well, kind of interesting. But they did nothing with it. The word of the Lord rolled off their backs like water off a duck, so to speak. There was no punch in the Bible for them. Besides, there were all kinds of other things in life that kept their attention. The life hereafter, or the presence of the living Lord, the promises of the Messiah seemed so remote and so distant that they only concentrated on the here and the now. And there's really nothing new under the sun. But today there's all kinds of people, some who sit in the pew week after week, who hear the word, who encounter the word of the Lord in one way or another, but they do nothing with it. It may be interesting. It may have lots of interesting things to say about the world and about the Middle East and about how to live. It may be a wonderful moral book, but most often it's kind of boring. A lot of stuff in there that's really boring and certainly not stuff to be believed. There are many who hold the attitude that if you want to believe the things of the Bible, that's nice. It's okay for you, but not for me. And so there's many who merely take the words of Scripture for information, and for some the name of Jesus then even becomes a curse word. They have no regard, really, for the realities of life, realities that are so much greater and so much broader than what meets the eye. There are those in this congregation, too, who are merely spectators to the faith. And who have been so for many, many years. They hear the old, old story of Jesus and his love. They watch baptism. They watch the Lord's Supper. Maybe they even partake in it. But they've never taken it very seriously. That was the situation of the rich man. He probably knew everything there was to know about the Bible. As any good Jew would. But he did nothing with it. As a result, he ended up in the last place he ever figured he would be, and now Abraham was telling him he was not going to send Lazarus to the rich man's brothers. The rich man didn't like Abraham's answer. Having the Bible apparently was not good enough. Having Moses and the prophets wasn't good enough. He wanted more. He wanted something dramatic to help shake his brothers up. He wanted the dramatic revelation. Perhaps someone coming like Lazarus coming to life again. That would surely sway his brothers. That would make them think. Imagine Lazarus walking in. Remember I was the old 
I was the poor man at your brother's door. I died. I talked to him. I come back, and now I warn you. No, said Abraham. Sound familiar? How often are we asking God, Lord, if only you would show us clearly somehow, then we would believe. Prove it to me, Christian, that your faith, your Jesus is real. Give me some sort of dramatic sign, a miracle or a sign in the sky or whatever. Thomas, unless I see the marks in his hands and feet and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. Show me that you're for real, Jesus, said Thomas. And then Thomas saw and believed, and he said, My Lord and my God. And then Jesus said, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Abraham answered the rich man that if his brothers do not listen to Moses and the prophets, then someone coming to life again will not convince them either. And if you want scriptural examples of that, there's two of them in the Bible. There's two scriptural examples of what happened when people did come back from the dead. In John 11, we read the story of how Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha, was actually raised from the dead. He had been in the tomb for four days. And you would think, wow! Now all of a sudden, everybody's going to say, you are Christ, you are the Lord, indeed, we will believe. It's not what happened. The result was a plot to kill Lazarus, John 12, verse 10, and a heightened desire to kill Jesus, John 11, 47 through 50. Go figure. Jesus himself rose from the dead. Was everyone converted? Did everyone say, wow, now we get it? Now he is Lord and we're going to believe in him. No, the story was hushed up and the Jewish nation was deceived and the church was persecuted. See what Jesus was getting at? He was specifically speaking to the Pharisees who loved their money, Luke 16, verse 15, and he warned them about taking the word of the Lord seriously. That's the whole point. The Bible is the word of God. The Bible is powerful. When we open it, we hear God speaking. God, the Lord, the Creator, the Redeemer, the one who poured out His Holy Spirit, we hear Him speaking. And when we hear God speaking in this word, He, he speaks about His grace in Christ Jesus. We heard something about that this morning, His love poured out. This book talks about the here and the now and about eternity, and it tells us how to live for him. And it's enough, says Jesus. No more is necessary. And so then the question is, how have you responded? Some hearing the word week after week have not responded. So how about it? We don't like it, but the parable is filled with heavenly warnings. Don't live your life as if nothing but yourself matters. Don't wait until it's too late, like the rich man who in the end was not very rich at all, by the way. Lazarus, the poor man, was far richer than the so-called rich man. 
And someday, as you and I stand before the great judge of heaven and earth, don't come with the excuses that the rich man threw at Abraham. I don't know. I wasn't warned. Those kinds of excuses will not cut it. We have Moses and the prophets, the gospels, and the epistles. We have the entire living word of God, the full gospel of salvation in Christ Jesus. What are you doing with it? Well, amen. Father in heaven, your word is there for us to read in the language we can understand, and for that we give you thanks. It's a word that speaks powerfully of who you are and of your plan of salvation. And it points us to Jesus Christ, and it talks about how the Spirit was poured out upon us. Oh, Lord, we pray that we may not just be hearers of that word and have it roll off our back like water off a duck. But we pray, O oh Lord, that we may respond. That we may live as you call us to live. That we may serve as you call us to serve. Not so that we can earn salvation. But because of the great wonder that you have done for us in the person of Christ Jesus. We thank you, O oh Lord, for organizations like Wycliffe, Wycliffe Bible Translators who, who are out there working hard to make sure that the Bible is translated in every tongue that is spoken by people in this world. Bless them in that work. Hasten them along in that work, we pray. Because we want people to hear the good news of Jesus and respond to him. We thank you, O oh Lord, for the Bible we thank you for the things that it teaches us. But most importantly, we thank you for the person to whom it leads us. Namely, Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, and our King, the Word incarnate. Oh Lord, thank you for this evening and for the opportunity to be together and to open your Word and as we go from this place, we pray that you would grow, go with us and that you would grant us your peace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.